Well, hello, and welcome to Curious Objects. I'm Ben Miller. And with me is Isabel Kent, um, who uh, is a, an art historian, um, a specialist in Spanish art, um, and uh, but who, who, whose interests are broad-ranging, um, and who runs an Instagram account, um, Izzy underscore Kent, which I find infinitely educational. Um, so I was excited to do a special episode with Isabel because um, we are cooped up in our homes. We are spending a lot of time with our own objects um, and the objects that fill our houses. And that means that um, you know many of us are paying a lot more attention than we normally do to our physical surroundings. And in some cases being driven wild by, you know, that crack in the ceiling um, or that, you know, creaky floorboard. But um, in other cases, we're, I think, finding new appreciation and new excitement around certain objects. And um, so we're actually just going to have a, a little chat um, about objects in our respective homes that have caught our attention recently and that have some interesting stories to tell around them. Um, so Isabel, hi, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And so tell me, start by telling me um, where, where exactly you are, because this isn't where you normally spend your days. No, so I am currently in an area of West London called Bedford Park. Uh, I'm in my family home. This is the home that I grew up in. I've moved back here for the, for the quarantine period. I'm here with, with me and my partner, um, looking after this house and, and having a wonderful time getting, getting to know the objects that surrounded me as I was growing up. And, and start and, with the house itself. It's, it's an arts and crafts period of construction, right? Yeah, so, so Bedford Park is a really important uh, area for people who are enthusiasts of city planning. Mm. So I don't know if any of your listeners love uh, city planning, um, but it was designed as the first garden suburb. And it was the brainchild of a man called Jonathan Carr, who was a developer. And he thought around 1875, he started having this idea uh, of creating a enclave of houses that were affordable, but they were also beautiful and aesthetic. And so he got on board the foremost uh, architect of the day, who was Norman Shaw, and they together designed this, this area in the style of Queen Anne. Mm. And so you have a lot of very beautiful houses, all in the style of Queen Anne, uh, or almost all in that style. And then certain other arch architects came on board too. So you have Voise, this incredible house by Voise in the area. And what Carr also wanted to do was really create a sense of community, like a village community. And so there's a pub, the Tabard, which is quite a famous pub. There's the church, St. Michael and All Angels, which looks like this huge uh, barn with furniture that's um, with uh, pews that are in the style of home furnishings. Oh, wow. Uh, somewhat. I mean, it's, it's really bizarre, very arts and crafts and uh, very beautiful with an attention to detail. And so actually one of the great joys of uh, this quarantine, we, we get in, in England, we get one hour of state sanctioned exercise a day. And right. I've been using that to uh, wander around this area and peek into people's houses and look at the design of their houses. And uh, it's been a real joy to, to see that and see all these different styles. And yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, beautiful what, what a treat. But, but you've been... Um of course spending a lot of time in the house where you're in right now and mm. there there's an interesting detail about that house that you told me about um last week it's totally fascinating so tell tell me about this this set of objects yeah so the objects i wanted to talk about uh are these five stained glass roundels that are in this bay window space in the living room of my house and stained glass is not unusual in this area uh, there's a lot of arts and crafts stained glass. Um, a lot of the main major English artists of the arts and crafts lived in Bedford Park after it had been designed. So they installed these things. But this is not arts and crafts stained glass. This is quite a bit earlier. And these five roundels, three of them are from probably around 1510 to 1530. They're Netherlandish roundels. So quite a few hundred years yeah, <laughs> earlier right. I mean, all the way than back to the this Renaissance. period. 
Well, exactly. And it's really curious, these objects. And then the other two are German mid-17th century roundels. They're actually oval roundels. Um, mm, okay. But I think they still count. And they're all five of these. Are, I find them really curious. And I remember being enchanted by them as a young child and then getting used to them as, you know, the background of your home. You just uh, ignore them. And then coming back, spending some more time now in this house of my childhood looking a little bit closer and thinking, wow, these things are really extraordinary and really out of place. Here. So these are the, their religious scenes, and we'll, we'll get into talking a little bit about what they actually depict. But just to reiterate, so there are two that are um, early 16th century, so 500 plus years old now. Three of them. Sorry, three of them that are 500 plus yeah. years old, and then another two that are German um, about 350 years old. But exactly. they were all installed in the house when it was constructed, you think? No, I think that they were installed probably around 1900. This house that I was currently in was built in 1883. Uh, but I think it was the second owner of this house that installed these roundels. So the first owner was actually okay. the master builder. And then a priest moved in and he converted the ground floor into one flat and then the floor above into a flat for his, for his lover who was a Navy man, I think member of the Merchant oh. Navy. And so they were in a, a homosexual relationship together, which was, of course, illegal in Britain at the time. Yeah, and I've been able to find... for a priest, I think, would be especially sensitive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think so too. That's probably why he had them in, in two different flats, although I'm sure they could get between them pretty easily. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, the, these two men... They traveled very widely. They were clearly uh, very fond of traveling, very fond of uh, collecting objects and looking at art. And I don't know exactly where they would have bought these roundels, possibly on their travels, or possibly they were floating around in London. In the 19th century, these stained glass roundels became quite popular with antiquarians mm. in England. And so perhaps there were some on the market at that time. Yeah. You know, I'm curious as to when these might have made their way into England, um, because, you know, certainly all kinds of European objects were being brought in earlier in that century through the Grand mm. Tour. Um, but do, do you think that's how I mean, this is this is on the late side for for what we think of as as like the proper Grand Tour period. Um, yeah. So how, how do you think they might have ended up um, where you are? Yeah, well, it's really difficult to say for sure uh, but grand tourists did pick up these objects if they were passing through the Netherlands or the Dutch Republic um, and uh, and there are some of these objects in British stately homes so you do mm. find them installed into the glass in stately homes yeah but also antiquarians collected these objects so maybe this was an interest to those antiquarian or print collectors a lot of these stained glass roundels are based on contemporary prints from the time right and so i wonder if that also appealed to the to the print collector of the 19th century yeah okay all right so but so one way or another they end up in, in england and then they they wind up in this home um and are installed by this priest and as as i mentioned before they are religious scenes but could you could you tell me more about that what are, what do the randalls actually depict hmm. so the three Netherlandish roundels, two of them are religious, but one of them is, is actually not. Yeah, and that, right. I think, is the most curious one. I'll start off with the religious ones. So we have, there's uh, a roundel of John the Baptist. Uh, it's about, just to give a sense of the size, they're about 20 centimetres in diameter, mm -hmm. which I looked up in inches. This is an American view, that's eight inches. Eight inches. Roughly eight inches. Um, and so we have John the Baptist. This one is probably the most... Uh, sketchy in terms of, or, or the least, uh, um, the least good draftsmanship okay, is the John yeah. the Baptist one. But you have John the Baptist. He's standing there. He's pointing down. There's a lamb at his feet, so he's pointing at the lamb, which is of course a reference to the Etiannus uh, Dei, the Behold the Lamb of God. But then, most curiously, is that there's a clergyman, um, a very young clergyman kneeling next to the John the Baptist figure. With a and very interesting haircut. In, yeah, this uh, this bob or this, even a bowl cut maybe. I think it looks like a quarantine haircut that his mum has done. Yeah. Can't get to the barber. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> 
And I, I do you think he's tonsured? It looks like uh, he's got a little bald patch right on top. I think that's right. Mm. And and meanwhile, John the Baptist himself has a beard that looks about like mine after um, <laughs> after weeks of quarantine. Well, you, you have a pretty impressive beard right now, Ben. I'm, uh... <laughs> so who's um, this clergyman? What what is he doing in the yeah. background? So he's pretty curious. I've been trying to figure out who he might be. I think probably the most likely is that he uh, commissioned this piece of stained glass, possibly for the church where he worked. Um, and I wonder if he might have been called John. And so this is kind of a saint being the namesake mm. of, uh, of the man who commissioned it. Interesting. And so I think he's probably a deacon. I think he's quite low in the church yeah. by the sense of his, his age, but also what he's wearing. So I wonder if, you know, these, these sorts of roundel objects weren't ludicrously expensive. It wasn't like commissioning a whole uh, window for stained glass. You could commission something like this and be able to install it for, a, I think, a pretty affordable mm, okay. sum. So maybe that was his way of... of uh, placing himself into this church yeah 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 nice to, that's, nice that's to have a theory, picture yeah. of yourself with john the baptist exactly even if it is a pretty scruffy john the baptist <laughs> that's right i mean you see this in in um illuminated manuscripts all the time right in books of hours and things where patrons will will place themselves in um in historical scenes or in yeah scenes from the bible um you know, there's Jesus and next to him is the count of thus and such. Um, exactly. Yeah, that's, it's been a really popular thing to do for many, many centuries before this roundel would have been created. So you see it exactly in illuminated manuscripts. You see it in medieval stained glass. You probably would have seen it in medieval wall paintings if more of them mm, survived. Mm. Um, but I can bring to mind a couple where that appears. Interesting. And uh, yeah, it's a very it's a very popular thing to do because if you're spending so much money on dedicating or, uh, if you're spending so much money on a work of art you want to place yourself there and it's it increases the intercession mm -hmm. for your soul the praying for your yes, soul right, and right. Uh, shows shows the good work that you've done yeah with this patronage yeah god is watching okay exactly. so let's so um shall we move on to to the next roundel what's what's the next yeah. one that you want to tell us about so this is the other Netherlandish religious roundel and this one I had a little bit more difficulty in terms of identifying the subject uh, it shows a young boy saint he's got the the halo so you know he's the he's the saint in the scene yeah. and he seems he seems to be he's holding the hand of an abbot hmm. and then behind them who, who has a this, you know a proper mitre on his head. Yes, exactly. So he's got he's got a mitre. Uh, he's he's got very uh, lavish robes. I think it looks like there's sort of fur trim on his robes, and he has a belt with a knife hanging off it. I mean, he looks he looks like a pretty dapper chap. Yes, he's, he's been a very successful abbot. Exactly. And I initially thought it was a bishop. Because, right, that's as what I assumed as well. But, so how do you know yeah. it's an abbot? Well, I. Luckily, asked someone who knew more than me, ah. um, and and I asked uh, this gentleman called Paul Taylor, who works at the Warburg Institute, and I was actually asking for his, his help identifying the scene because it's quite hard to know who this might be, what it might be depicting. The other detail, just to point out before I tell you what Paul uh, thinks the scene is, I give him full credit for this, uh, is that behind the child saint and the abbot is a crying woman, a very finely dressed, quiet crying woman. She has a very lavish uh, headdress on, this kind of round padding yeah. uh, on, on her head. And so what Paul said it probably is, is a scene from the early life of a saint who, against the wishes of his mother, becomes a monk. Oh, I see. So he's leaving and home that... and, and going to join a monastery. Exactly. And that would make sense because you have this fence that seems to cut him off from the, the mother figure. Yeah. And uh, and, yeah, and there's a sort of a, a, you know, a stone wall with turrets behind them, behind the figures. Is that, mm. do you think that's the monastery or uh, you know, it looks, I think it looks it might too... be the monastery, but although it looks 
quite a lot like a castle. Yeah. So it's not it's not very monastic looking. Right. Um, maybe maybe it's just a particularly well fortified monastery. Maybe 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 it's the artist's idea of what a monastery back in the day looked like. Oh uh, yeah. I don't think this is a a contemporary saint. Yeah. So there's a little bit of um, anachronism, maybe. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so so there are a couple of saints that, well, quite a lot of saints that it could be, because this sort of story of a young boy going against the wishes of his parents to follow God is is a really popular saintly journey. Yeah. Um, but one possibility is that it could be Saint Boniface, uh, and Saint Boniface then becomes a major saint for Germany, and so this being made in that area or made in the Netherlands, so nearby, right. that could make sense. But I'd, it's definitely not confirmed. But that's what we think is going on. Okay. So listeners, it's definitely St. Boniface. <laughs> yeah, thanks, if, Ben. If you take one thing away from this episode, <laughs> that roundel is St. Boniface. Okay. So let's, let, let's go on. There's... You say there's one more Dutch roundel, right? There's one more. And this, I think, is the most curious of all, because this is of the virtue Prudentia, the allegorical figure. Um, Prudentia, or prudence in, in our language, in the English language, uh, is one of the four cardinal virtues. So you have prudence, temperance, fortitude, and justice as the cardinal virtues. Well, I don't have them, but maybe you do. You don't have them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, I think you're pretty virtuous, Ben. Yes, well, it's... <laughs> Up for debate. We'll just leave that one alone for now. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, and, and prudence is, is often depicted as a two-faced, literally two-faced um, person. So what, and, and that is the case in this roundel. It's a, a figure with a face on the front and the face on the back. Which mm. you, you know, so maybe we're more more familiar with Janus as the two faced god looking forward and backward through time. But but what's why does prudence have two faces? Well, I think it's that ability to see ahead and to act act prudently. Mm. Um, and so you have this young, usually a female face. Here it's slightly hard to tell, but I think it's meant to be a female face. And then an old man's face on the back of the head. Um, so there's a sort of a, an androgynous element as well. Yeah. Well, it is an allegorical figure. I mean, it's not meant to depict someone right. who actually existed. Uh, it's meant to depict this ideal with all of these different attributes. Yeah. And it inclu includes a lot of those attributes. So you have a mirror, uh, you have a compass, uh, hmm. so a compass to, to be able to make a circle. Mm -hmm. um, you call them compasses in America. Yes, you? that's right. Yep. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> Uh, and then, quite interestingly, there's a there's a wyvern down the bottom, and prudence is often depicted with a snake, but in this case, it's a wyvern, which is like a dragon creature, but just with two legs. Yeah. And the reason for these specific attributes, because prudence is not always painted with a compass and is not always painted with a wyvern, the reason for these two is because of the print source. And I managed to find uh, the print source that this is based on. This is this so cool. This roundel is based on. Yeah, and it's from a pack of playing cards, from quite a famous pack of playing cards, really? actually, uh, called the Mantegna Tarocci, or Tarocchi, uh, which sound quite similar to tarot cards because they are quite linked to tarot cards, okay. or the modern idea of tarot cards. And this was a, a set of playing cards made around 1470, 1480, in uh, in Italy. And they were very popular. And then in the 1530s, a German set of these playing cards was made. Uh, so a German engraver copied his set of the Italian playing cards. But when you copy an image onto an engraving plate, the, the image that you get is the reverse it of gets your original flipped over. image. Right. Exactly. And so I think that this uh, this stained glass painter was looking at the German set of cards because his prud prudence is facing that way oh, right. as opposed to the way of the original Italian cards. Okay. So that gives us a date for the, this particular roundel to around 1530, 1540. That's fantastic. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's some good sleuthing. How did you track down the playing cards? Yeah. 
Google is our friend. Yeah, these, okay. The, right. the, the playing cards. The British Museum has a, a large set of these playing mm, cards. Right. And so I was looking at the Italian set thinking, oh, brilliant, I found the copy. But this reverse of the composition was clear. Yeah. And then I saw that there was this German set that was made in the early 16th century. So I think... Fascinating. Yeah. That gives some gives some clues. But it's fun just trying to trace back the iconography. Yeah, this is real detective work. I love it. Mm. Okay, so we um, have, so, yeah, so I, then we have mm. two other roundels that the... Oh, um, I, I want to say a couple oh, more things on, yeah. on the Prudence roundel. Mm. Um, but what I really like about the Prudentia roundel is it's clearly very high quality. So unlike the other two roundels mm. where mm-hmm. it's a little bit more sketchy, they're also smaller. Uh, the Prudentia roundel is very big. And it's very beautifully painted. And I say painted because uh, this stained glass technique, you have a single uh, pane of glass, you paint in black on the front and it sort of fuses when it's fired. And then it has these yellow, this yellow staining effect called silver stain. Right. Uh, which I'm I'm bringing up because of you, Ben, because of your love, <laughs> yes. love for silver. Uh, let's let's shoehorn silver into this somewhere. You know what makes um, me happy. <laughs> uh, silver staining is a technique where you get a silver alloy, so it can be, um, it can be sort of silver nitrate. Sorry, where, where you get a silver compound, so it can be silver nitrate or silver chloride. And you mix it with a binding and then you put it on the, on the reverse side of the stained glass. And after you've heated it, what it does is it stains the glass yellow. And so this particular Prudentia roundel has very beautifully placed yellow staining. Sometimes it can be done quite roughly. But here the artist has really taken a lot of effort in making this yeah, roundel. There's very um, fine detail and, and mm. you know a pretty interesting range of autumnal colors yeah uh, yeah but it's really what yeah. yeah i mean it's a it's a very inviting scene i have to say mm. and and also he's clearly looking and combining a lot of different print sources because this pack of playing cards was quite roughly made and but this prudentia figure while clearly based on the composition is much more intricate and then the trees behind really have a very dura-esque effect you know Dura's prints would have been floating around uh, all of these workshops I'm sure they would have been very familiar and the trees are really done in that style and so I think this artist has gone to great lengths to combine a bunch of different sources to create this roundel yeah yeah and I wonder if it was part of a larger set as well because it would be unusual to have Prudence just by by herself sure you'd think it would at least be with the other cardinal virtues yeah. and then maybe with yeah. all the virtues. So it could have been mm. quite a large, lavish set. So, there, yeah, it might have been a set of four or even even more than that. Yeah. Interesting. I love how you're you're able to draw out this um, actually quite detailed uh, picture of what the the sort of the circumstances were around the production of the of the roundel. I mean, it's um, this is sort of the, the fun of art history, right? Is you're able to create a story drawing on what at first glance seems like very limited information, just a single picture. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, here now we know all about these these playing cards and these various print sources and the workshops that the artist was working in. And yeah, um, yeah it's, uh, it's well, quite the, fun. The wonderful thing about art history, I mean, I'm sure you find this, Ben, with your work, is it's kind of like a lens and you can put things through through the glass pane let's call it that since we're looking yes. at glass panes but you can you know look at it from a social perspective or from a, the materiality or cultural elements or in terms of the uh, sort of connoisseurial uh, approach and looking at print sources i mean there are so many different ways that yeah. you can approach an object yeah. like this and it's yeah. it's picking up the little tiny threads and i'm mixing my metaphors here but uh, but it's a really wonderful thing to try and do and i think the nice thing about this quarantine and you know this project of looking into these rounders a little bit more uh, has really revealed a lot more than what first meets the eye. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. 
As you know, Curious Objects is published by the magazine Antiques, the publication of record in the world of fine and decorative arts for almost 100 years. The folks at the magazine Antiques are as concerned as you are about COVID-19, and they are rolling out a series of online projects to help you cope while you're stuck at home. Check out the themagazineantiques.com, where they post new and archival stories daily. They've built a new page, Antiques of the Week, which showcases exceptional individual items from dealers who are still buying and selling even if their shows have been canceled. There's also an Antique of the Day, selected by the brilliant editor-at-large, Glenn Adamson, who was my guest on Curious Objects back in June of 2019. The Antique of the Day is posted on the magazine Antiques' Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, And if that's not enough for you, they also have a weekly newsletter called The Wandering Eye. That's a compendium of topical, antiques-focused articles from across the web. It's, It's a great read. And last but not least, subscribe to the magazine and get the upcoming May and June issue of the magazine Antiques delivered to your mailbox. That way, you are also supporting the United States Postal Service. Because, after all, there's nothing more comforting than curling up with a good magazine while you wait out the end of the world. Since you brought up silver, um, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna take that as an, an excuse to to um, yes, please to Let's... talk about myself. <laughs> no, well, you know the the objects. That, so we wanted to sort of talk about um, our experiences of objects in our own, in our own homes, and um, I love stained glass because you know they're they're works of art. Um, but I'm actually uh, I wanted to talk a little about um, decorative art, you know, as mm. I am a silver specialist, uh, I have, um, a certain number of silver objects in my home, um, which I very much enjoy. And there's one object, well, it's actually a pair of objects that are, um, a pair of candelabra that I find quite interesting. They're, um, they're what we call silver plated. So that means they're actually made of, um, sheets of copper with, um, sheets of silver, uh, fused to them. And this is a technique that was developed in the 18th century in England. Um, You know, silver is very expensive, um, always has been. And so, you know, for a long time, if you wanted a silver object at home, you had to be willing to pay a lot of money for it. But uh, in the mid 18th century, this technique was developed um, called silver plating, where they, they essentially realized that the chemical properties of silver and copper um, allow those two metals to be fused together and then worked as if they were a single sheet. Um, and so you could take a thin sheet of silver and a thick sheet of copper and hammer it just like you would hammer a regular old sheet of silver, create an object that looks like it's made of silver, but most of the weight of it is actually copper, which is much cheaper. Um, so this is a way that uh, silversmiths could start to produce objects that were much more well, you could say down market, I suppose, but mass market, you know, that were, um, yeah, that affordable. Were men, yeah, af- affordable, relatively speaking. I mean, they were still expensive, but they weren't nearly as expensive as, you know, the, the dining services that, um, that you associate with, uh, with nobles, with royalty, um, you know, pieces that really required massive fortunes, um, to invest in. So this pair is, um, is, what we call old Sheffield plate. So Sheffield was the city where this production was really pioneered. And my neck of the woods. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> or at least um, on the same island that I'm currently on. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, yeah, and and you know the most famous figure associated with the development of old Sheffield plate um, is a fellow named Matthew Bolton, um, whose portrait appears on the fifty-pound note. Um, he he is most famous actually for working with James Watt to develop the steam engine and commercialize that. So he was really a very successful industrialist, but he was also, you know, his his real passion was silversmithing. And he created this um, Soho Manufactory, which was an enormous production facility where they churned out, well, all kinds of objects, but among them um, old Sheffield plate. Now, I don't know if these candelabra that I have were made in the Soho manufactory. They're not marked, um, and oftentimes pieces by Matthew Bolton are marked. 
So they might have been made by another um, silversmith, or they might have been made by Bolton. It's it's without a mark, you can't really say for certain. Um, but what's really interesting about them, you know, they're made they're they're formed in a neoclassical style. They have um, uh, two branches. Um, they're sort of twisty branches um, that that spiral around each other, and then in between them, in the center, there's a, an urn, uh, which is just this very typical. Um, figure of neoclassical design, neoclassical architecture. You, know, you see it in Robert Adam. Um, it's the, uh, you know, the, the epitome of symmetry and elegance and restraint. What's really unusual about these candelabra is that they are telescoping. And what I mean by that is the column that holds up the, the branches that the candlesticks sit in um, actually moves up and down. So it's made out of um, cylinders that fit inside each other so you can raise and lower it. And it's it's kind of wacky. It's kind of kitschy. Um, I think the idea was, you know, you ought to be able to set your table um, however you like. And sometimes that means you want, you know, high set candelabra to cast light down from above across maybe a large group of, um, of diners. And other times maybe you're having an intimate um, dinner with just your close family and you want to set them low down um, to you know create a more intimate environment um, I don't know how um, popular these really were you see examples of them in sterling silver you see some examples in old Sheffield Sheffield plate um, they're they're not that common and actually although I can't say that these candelabra are worth an enormous amount of money um, they are actually fairly rare, which um, makes me like them all the more. But I just, uh, you know, I like these quirky pieces that are were sort of, you know, an experiment in design that mm, didn't last very long. You know, it was sort of abandoned fairly quickly. But um, but I love the idea that in 1780 or 1790, you know, there's a silversmith who said, you know, we've been stuck all too long with this old idea of candelabra and candlesticks that are, are just one height. Time to make candelabra that can be as many heights as you want. <laughs> so now ben, to... Uh, do you th oh. Yeah, no, go ahead. Oh. I was going to ask, do you think it ties in with that curiosity effect of some silver table designs? You know, you'll have these really elaborate things that kind of can draw in conversation and do you think something like this was it purely mechanical was it purely for a function or do you think it was kind of to show your friends that right. you had this nifty candelabra yeah i wonder about that i mean you know this is a period when certainly you see all kinds of interesting um industrial style uh home decorations right i mean models of of steam engines were very popular in wood and in um, metal, even in silver, um, and and I sort of wonder if this is if this wasn't a you know a fun little party trick, right? Yeah. May, maybe at a certain point in the evening, the host will just sort of casually stand up and lower the candelabra and catch everyone, <laughs> and everyone off will guard. Gasp yeah. as if <laughs> yes. yes, well, it's it's a mild pleasure, but um, we take our entertainment where we can get it. Oh, definitely. And can you give me a sense of who would this who would be buying this? You know, what level of society was it? You said that they're more affordable than the yeah. high silver. Does this kind of coincide with that growing upper middle class, you know, growing nouveau riche? That's it that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean this is you know, there's still a certain amount of, of silver metal that goes into the creation of silver plate. Um so there is an expense there. And there is still an expense involved in, in the craftsmanship. Um you know, although people like Michael, uh, like Matthew Bolton, were starting to standardize and industrialize the manufacturing process. Um, it remained the case that a piece like this uh, demanded a, a large amount of handiwork. Now, if you're talking about sterling silver um, dinner services, for example, the cost of the handiwork is fairly small relative to the cost of the raw materials. The, the advent of silver plate shifts that equation on its head. So now the raw materials, although they're still 
um, they still cost some money. You know, really the bulk of the expense is now the, the manufacturing. Um, they're not going to be affordable enough that um, most people in Britain um, could casually buy a pair, right? But they're, uh, they're attainable for the middle class, the upper middle class, you know, um, mercantile um, people, um, business people, mm -hmm. industrial people, uh, managers, you know, uh, people who are starting to accumulate a little bit of capital um, and who want to impress their friends. And that's really where Old Sheffield Plate um, gains its, its uh, commercial foothold. Um, it's a way of showing off elegance to your friends without going to the enormous expense of buying large quantities of silver that, you know, that, that might bankrupt you. How long does Old Sheffield plates remain popular? Um, well, forever. I mean, it's still made today. Uh, it's now today, it's generally made with a different technique, you know, using electroplating. So a chemical mm. process, it's usually yeah. not made by actually fusing together sheets of copper and silver and then hammering them by hand. Um, but certainly silver plated material is quite popular today. It's, it's even a medium that, that artists work in sometimes. Um, and frankly, you know, it's collectible. Uh, it's, I think, especially for someone who's interested in antique English silver, old Sheffield plate is a great place to start because you can find a lot of the same forms that you find in, in sterling silver and a lot of the same, um, uh, techniques, a lot of the same kinds of craftsmanship, but it tends to be a lot more affordable. Um, and there, there are cases actually where there are objects in old Sheffield plate that were so elaborate and, and large, frankly, that they would have been impractical to make in silver. Um, so you find, uh, forms that exist only in old Sheffield plate. Um, and Such in, as? well, so, uh, you know, you might find, for example, um, soup terrines that are half again as large as a soup terrine that, that would be made in sterling, right? Um, yeah. Tea urns, um, you know, just sort of towering, heavy, enormous objects, ponderous things that, um, you know, may, may, maybe they, there are silver examples out there, but they're very few and far between. Um, and, you know, again, we think of Old Sheffield Plate as being a sort of a lower class of object uh, compared to sterling, but there are pieces of Old Sheffield Plate in the Royal Collection. Um, there are pieces of Old Sheffield Plate that are ambassadorial. You know, it, it wasn't just for the um, struggling upper middle class, right? I mean, the, these objects were sometimes made for, for dukes and earls and ambassadors and royalty. Um, so, you know, the, the sort of knee-jerk reaction of looking down on it, I think, is a little misplaced. Can I ask a really basic question? Please. Which is, if I were seeing a piece of old Sheffield plate in an antique shop, how would I know that it wasn't silver? Yeah. Um, so there are a couple of ways to, um, to approach that. The most basic is you look for hallmarks. Yeah. And um, sterling silver made in, in uh, Britain since the 14th century has been mm -hmm. legally required to be marked um, with regulatory marks that um, confirm that it's actually silver. Old Sheffield plate doesn't have those marks. Now it might have other marks on it and it might have pseudo hallmarks even that mm -hmm. um, are intended to maybe not to fool exactly, but to sort of make them look a little more like sterling at a glance. Mm. Um, but you won't find the um, the typical English silver hallmarks on pieces of old Sheffield plate. So if you see those hallmarks, then you know it's not old Sheffield plate. Um, you can often find signs of, of copper showing through the silver. Because over time, you know, as you polish a piece of silver, you're actually removing um, a little bit of the material bit by bit. And the silver on a piece of old Sheffield plate is thin enough that on parts of the object that get a lot of wear, you can often start to see little hints of orange, or in some cases, it actually will just pop all the way through, and you'll you'll see it, wow. um, whole areas of copper. People say that you can actually smell it, 
<laughs> that an old, a piece of old Sheffield plate, you can smell the copper coming through. I have a terrible sense of smell, so I can't <laughs> verify that. Um, but you're welcome to give that a shot. Um, I, Next time I'm in New York, I'm going to be sniffing your silver. That's, I'll, try and, that's right. I'll try and tell. You can do a blind tasting. It'll be like a wine taste. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Just with uh, Old Sheffield or, or Sterling. Yeah, I mean, you can smell it. You could lick it. Um, that, that might give you some evidence, <laughs> That goes back so. to what we were previously talking about, about stained glass. Um, this is before we started recording, but we're talking about uh, the way you can sometimes tell the age of different pieces of stained glasses by licking them to feel the texture yes that's, that's what right, my professor exactly, uh, exactly. used to say so um <laughs> you know we have all kinds of funny tools in this business the first thing that i do this is a little trade secret the first thing i do when i'm looking at a piece of antique silver is i hold it up to my mouth and i breathe on it and the goal there is to you know you fog up the surface and often that can reveal imperfections um if, for example, uh, you know, if there was a coat of arms on the object that's been mm -hmm. removed um, and you breathe over it, you can often see discoloration where the coat of arms used to be. Um, yeah. So it's a, a nice sort of uh, first clue that there might be something going on there. Oh, very sneaky. I'll need to try that out. Sadly, I don't have any uh, any incredible pieces of silver in my collection to start breathing on yeah but well, next time we'll, I'm... we'll work on that <laughs> yeah exactly i think you've uh, you're converting me okay but we so after this little diversion i want to get back because there are there are still two more um roundels that um that you haven't told me about that i'm eager to hear about and these are the oval ones that are 17th century right mm, yeah so these are very conveniently dated they've they've got a little date mark on them oh, that's and nice. these are both religious as well so yeah these are from 1655 is the date okay and these aren't silver stained these are purely monochrome so they just have that black painting but it's done much more delicately than the earlier roundels yeah taking out prudentia which is a special one sure. but most of the earlier roundels and these really, more than anything, can tell you that these roundels are based on print sources because they look like prints, almost. They look like yeah, prints that have been yeah. printed onto uh, glass. <laughs> right, they have that kind of um, shading and hatch exactly. cross-hatching that you'd expect. Yeah, yeah, and very clear delineation in, in terms of all the, all the lines are very clearly... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, like a coloring uh, book almost. Illustrated. Exactly, exactly. But they are very beautiful, very Baroque in their style. Mm -hmm. And they depict... One is, is the Annunciation, um, and you have the Virgin, as you do in the Annunciation, and the Angel Gabriel, and then above you have God and the Holy Ghost who's coming down to impregnate the Virgin Mary. Um, and then you have an open book which says... Uh, et, Forgive my Latin pronunciation. Uh, Ecce anquila domini fiat mihul fecundum verbum tuum. Uh, I'm saying that in very British style Latin, which any yes, Italian listening will, will cry. Anglican ecclesiastical <laughs> pronunciation there. Exactly. So, um, um, and I'm sure our, our listeners already know what that means. But, um, but for my sake, could you give me a little translation? Sure. So this is this is the line: Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Be it done to me according to thy word. Right. So it's a very important line in the Bible where Gabriel's come down and letting the letting the virgin know that she is about yes. to uh, bear the Son of God. It's sort of interesting so that's what that, that um, scene shows. The, the verse describing the scene is in the scene. It's a little uh, self-referential uh, mm. element there. Yeah. Well, you often you often have this in the uh, in scenes of the Annunciation, um, well into the Baroque. You know, often we think that it's quite a medieval thing to have writing within uh, a religious scene but it's it's pretty common mm. and it would certainly help identify it if, if this was uh if this composition um is from a printed bible which is what i suspect it was from um then you'd expect words to be included yeah in these, right, right. In these plates in this way so that's the first one and actually, something I just want to pick out here is these prints, sorry, these, uh, these roundels are all quite damaged. You'll see if you uh, take a look at the photos of these that they're quite heavily leaded. Yeah. And 
in this enunciation, you can actually see where a piece of glass was lost and it's been quite crudely, a new one has been crudely inserted and painted on to disguise it. I see can you that. see which it's, one that is Yeah, then? it's Gabriel's uh, left arm, right? Exactly, yeah. Just And it shows the robes and uh, the end of the wing, but it's completely different. And it's yeah, discolored. In, in a different colour, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It has this sort of brown tinge. So, I mean, this happens very often with stained glass in general, but particularly uh, with these roundels, they were easier to travel. You know, a lot of stained glass stays in situ for a long time, uh, unless you have the Reformation and everything's being smashed up. Right. But, but with these roundels, they're, they're quite portable as stained glass goes. And so um, they do get more damaged. Yeah. Um, actually, if, if you're listening from New York, one of the great collections of particularly the Netherlandish, early Netherlandish roundels, uh, is at the Met at the Cloisters Museum. So I definitely recommend Absolutely. people yeah. check that out. Uh, always, the trip once, to Cloisters yeah. is always worth it. Once, yes, once quarantine once is lifted. Again. Maybe those are yeah. online. I'm sure they're online. Yeah, they must be. Um, and yes, and, the, and then the other one of these German roundels, yeah. shall I go, go on to that one? Yes, please. Uh, this is of two saints. Um, the first is uh, John the Evangelist. He's pretty easy to identify because he's got the chalice uh, with a snake coming out of it. Yeah. And this is from the story that John was given a poisoned chalice and then he blessed it and the poison uh, ran away in the form of a snake. Was it, it's, an, was it? it's a neat trick. Exactly, exactly. So that's that's how you can identify him. But the other woman, I definitely would not have been able to identify without what is written below without her being identified because she is St. Adelaide or Adelheid as it's called here. And she's given me pause and I'm a little bit confused by this because St. Adelheid was uh, a saint from the, the 10th century. She was the wife of the Holy Roman Emperor Otto I. This is Adelaide of Italy. And if I've got it right that that's who this woman is meant to be, I don't think she's a martyr saint. And yet this woman is holding a palm, mm. uh, which is the sign of, of being a martyr saint. Right. So what I wonder is if this roundel, um, this is pure speculation, but if the person commissioning it really wanted St. Adelaide, but the printmaker or the, the sorry, the uh, painter, the glass, the glass maker couldn't, find a representation of St. Adelaide because she wasn't, you know, astronomically popular. Perhaps he was just using a random, you know, a portrait yeah, of a female right, saint that he right. happened to have and inserted it in. Because certainly this combination of John and St. Adelaide is not, not a common one. It's not right. one you'd yeah, they don't, come across. They don't have any sort of natural affiliation. No, no, exactly. So I wonder if it's a similar situation... Uh, to what we were talking about with the the uh, deacon who maybe, you know, I was postulating he might have been called John. Right. And perhaps this, this uh, the person commissioning this maybe was very fond of St. Adelaide, but... So this is... Yeah, but the painter... This is John and... Didn't know what Adelaide should look mi like. Miscellaneous female saint. Exactly. Miscellaneous female saint who then below, it's written that... This is who she's meant to be. She's meant to be St. Adelaide, but otherwise you'd have no idea. And they also have a nice little uh, pastoral scene behind them with a, a church in the yeah. background. It's really quite yeah. lovely. I mean, it's... Uh, I uh, think so too. I think I think it's very beautiful and it's um, a wonderful fluke to be living in a house that just happened to have these roundels installed in the windows uh, when, you know, my mother moved in however many decades ago. So... Yeah, it's really... Yeah, what a treat. Well, I'm, uh, yeah, I have definitely. to say, I'm, I, yeah, I'm a little envious. <laughs> I know, I wish I wish my flat uh, came with came with some free roundels too, but um, <laughs> thankfully I got to enjoy them growing up and, and seeing these. In fact, it's it's a bit of a funny story. My, my parents, they're art enthusiasts, but they're not art collectors. Uh, and my, my mother, she was very young when she moved into half of the ground floor. So... Bedford Park was incredibly run down in the mid 20th century. And she moved into half the ground floor. Most of the house was bedsits. And the reason she moved into this particular flat is because the, um, the day before she went to go to the viewing, she had her uh, 
the tarot read. She had the tarot card okay. reading. Yeah. And this is the kind of uh, hippie, hippie generation that we're talking uh -huh. about. And so she had this tarot reading and in the position of home was the hermit card, which is meant to represent prudence. And she and her friend who was doing the tarot reading for her couldn't figure out what made her prudent because she mm. wasn't a particular prudent, okay. prudent person at this stage of her life. And they really couldn't figure it out. And then she went, she was looking for a place to stay and she went to this flat and the sun was shining directly through the roundel of the, uh, the Prudentia roundel. And she was like, wow, this is just a sign. <laughs> she didn't realise it was a, a 16th century, early 16th century Netherlandish roundel. She just thought, you know, this, clearly it was foretold in my tarot cards. Wow. And then I now discover that the figure of Prudentia is based on these, on these early tarocchi or tarocchi yeah. cards. The Italian ones. Bringing so it full circle. It all exactly brings it full circle. The usefulness of having an art historian as a daughter. That is a hell of a story. Yeah. So not only do we have the, the gay couple who first bought these and installed them in the house, it then, you know, connects to the, the personal side too. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, what a fun so. uh, you know, mother-daughter <laughs> mother bonding experience. I know, I know. When I when I was telling her that I was doing this little research, she... Um, uh, yeah, she whipped out that story, and I thought I've got I've got to include that. It's I love it. Not it's not the pure art history. It's not what I usually go in for, but it's a nice bit of eccentricity that you know gives can give objects a little bit more personal, you know, very personal depth. I don't think if I ever sold these, I don't think anyone would yeah, right. would would mind. Right, but right, uh, right. yeah, for me, they're really special. Well, thanks for sharing them with us and taking taking us on, taking us on that uh, that little journey. Thank you so much. And thanks for telling me about your telescopic uh, um, candelabra. They're fascinating. And I can't wait to see them when yes, finally this quarantine yes, is lifted yes, and they can some, uh, come to New York to, again. To look forward to. Exactly. And um, for listeners, they can find you on Instagram again at I double Z Y underscore K E N T. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, I imagine you'll, pro you'll probably have some pictures of the roundels up there at some point. Yeah, and, when um, when you put up the podcast, yeah, I'll, I'll put great. up some of the roundels. And I'll do that as well at Objective Interest. Um, so please check those out. They're they're very pretty. And I'll put up a picture of the candelabra too while I'm at it. Why not? Mm. Well, Isabel, thanks so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely speaking with you and sharing the, sharing the roundels and hearing about your candelabra. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delati. Our music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm your host, Ben Miller. <laughs>